Podcast. The Gospel According to Matthew was written by a former tax collector who was transformed by the power of Christ. Instead of keeping records for Rome, now he would keep records for God, carefully recording all that Jesus said and did. Matthew references more than 60 Old Testament prophecies, proving Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah. Jesus really is who he claimed to be, our Savior and soon returning King. Now let's join Pastor Ross with our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Matthew. We are picking up where we left off in Matthew chapter 5 as you get settled back in your seats. Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus will finish up his first point there of many to come. Hard words to live by today, very challenging. So let's go to the Lord and ask him for his help. Now, Father God, with these... uh, impossible commandments today that we find uh, way beyond our own ability. And uh, these are commands we don't even want to do, that we find them uh, unattractive. We don't want to submit to this teaching because it goes against our emotions and our natural way of thinking. So help us, God, to know that your ways are higher than our ways and ours is not to question you or to try to find a loophole around something that seems impossible, but to find a way through the grace of God to obey so that you will be pleased and we will be blessed. In Jesus' name, amen. So in many ways, I believe Jesus saves the best for last here now in the Sermon on the Mount illustrating really the point he's been making and hammering away now for some while here on the Sermon on the Mount. And his point was this, uh, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that Christ himself must be our only hope if we're ever gonna make it to heaven. So Jesus is smashing to smithereens as we like to say the first century Jewish idea, which is a contemporary idea as well, that if you're basically a good person, you will make it to heaven. Comparatively speaking, we look around and compare ourselves down and then say, well, compared to the rest of the riffraff in the world, I'm a pretty decent guy. And he says, oh, no, you've got to compare yourself upward to God, to Christ, the Son of God, to heaven's standard of moral perfection, and then you will see that you fall short. You cannot be good enough, and you need a Savior. And so this is the love that is uh, driving Jesus to teach salvation uh, by grace uh, and grace alone. Whoever believes in him should not perish and have everlasting life. If you were applying for a dream job and the recruiter tells you, look, this is a little bit different. No, none of your past experience will matter. Uh, none of your skills, abilities, or knowledge, or your aptitude about the, the job position, none of your training, none of your education will be considered. Put your resume away. The owner has one qualification, a personal recommendation from his son. You have to get to know his son. And if his son rec- recommends you, then you're in. And so to the owner of the universe, the king of heaven, the applicants for eternal life and a place and position in the palace, uh, he's going to say, it's not by your good works. You have to come. Romans chapter 4 put, put it this way. You have to come to God by faith to the God who justifies the wicked. He justifies the wicked in that he takes out his wrath upon the wicked through Christ as the sin bearer substitute 
to pay for all the wicked deeds in the world. And it's through faith, he says, in love, then I will give you the goodness, the moral perfection required because I'll join you to the only one who ever lived morally perfect. And that's how you get in. But nobody's coming until they're convinced of that. If you think there's one shred of goodness in you that God would be impressed with, then he has to uh, really help you to do away with that. And this is what he's been doing. He's been bringing out the commandments because nothing helps us to see our need and cry out for a savior than commandments that are written in stone by the very finger of almighty God himself pointing out God's gold standard. And so Jesus has brought out, uh, will bring out six commands. We have considered five already. And now we've got one last commandment he wants to talk about, and it's the real showstopper of them all. We'll pick up here now in verse 43. So five commands, and then this sixth one. You've also heard that it was said, verse 43, Matthew 5, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Now, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even uh, the tax collectors doing that? Everyday criminals do that. And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than anybody else? Don't even unbelieving atheists do that? So be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. So let's leave that up there so that we can... Let those words marinate into our souls. And you know, as I've said before, sometimes, you know, in fireworks, when fireworks go off in July, you know when it's all over, the show's done. When what? It's boom, 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 boom. It's the big uh, display, right? The spectacular event (laughs) comes at the end. And so I kind of think that Jesus is doing this because he's culminating his, the end of his first point of the sermon, which is men fall short and are going to need a savior. And so he brings everything together in this impossible, uh, command here as he closes out, uh, chapter five with some big, big booms for sure. So The context might be nice that if you haven't been with us, you don't know what the five other commands were that he brought out to kind of pry away any uh, self-righteousness at all that we could have by thinking that we've obeyed some of these commands. But he explained the commands in such a way to, to make us all know, whoops, I've broken every single one of them. If not outwardly, then certainly I've breached the spirit of the commandment in my heart. Heart. And so he started there. I'll just list them for you while uh, we're getting started here. Uh, number one, he said, You've heard the common thinking out there that if technically you've never murdered anybody, you never really pulled the trigger, that you've kept the commandment, thou shalt not murder. But I tell you, if you've been angry or you ever cussed somebody out or wished somebody dead or ill will, you've committed a sin worthy of, quote, the fires of hell, Jesus speaking. And then he brought out, thou shalt not commit adultery. And he said, you know what most people think. If you've technically never done the deed, that you're actually faithful and you're off the hook and you are no adulterer. But I say to you, making someone the object of your lust, you've committed adultery in the privacy of your own heart. Heart. Number three said, will you know the commonly held notion out there that God's okay with easy divorce? You know, for any and all reason, I mean, divorce happens and he's okay with it. But I tell you the truth, that was never God's intention. He designed marriage for a lifetime. And unless there's a serious breaking of vows like adultery, God doesn't recognize your sham divorces. And so, four, he said, 
You also know it's common practice to swear that you're telling the truth. Oh, yeah, I swear to God it's true. Well, (laughs) you do this so that people will know when you really are telling the truth, or at least when you want them to think you're really going to tell the truth. (laughs) But I tell you, Jesus says, only people who can't be trusted to tell the truth need to take oaths in the first place. How about this, Christian? Just tell the truth all the time, 24-7. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. And then number five, he said, you know how everyone thinks that God condones getting even. I mean, it's only natural. If someone aggresses you, aggress them back. Someone insults you, insult them back. If someone sues you, you countersue. But I tell you, don't stoop to their level. Don't play the game. Rise above it all. Don't retaliate at all. Leave that to God. Keep your heart sweet and uh, safe from bitterness. Respond with the opposite spirit to show that you belong to God. Amen. He says, blow their minds and open their hearts and really overcome evil with good. So there you have it. Now he brings out the You've heard it said (laughs) that it's okay to love people in general, but you can hate your enemy. But I tell you, oh no, I want you to love your enemy. That's the full context. It follows what I just said. In fact, I have it summed up for you here. He's been telling Christians, not do this so that you can be saved, but he's telling disciples who've been saved by faith, now that you're saved, now that you're regenerated, now because heaven belongs to you and you belong to the king of heaven and the king dwells in your heart by the power of the Holy Spirit, this is how we live. Never a hateful thought in your heart, sexual purity inside and out, marital faithfulness to the toughest of times, speaking the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, 24-7, seven days a week, and even on holidays. (laughs) Never retaliate. Never, when aggressed, rather do them good. And then he brings down, now as he wraps up his point, love your enemies and be perfect, just like your Father in heaven. Well, you know, We look at that and we feel the weight of that kind of life that God is requiring. And we say, Houston, Fort Worth, San Antonio, we have a problem. Amen. (laughs) Sorry. Somebody told me not to use that the second service. (laughs) And I said, if I set it up better, I think they'll like it. He goes, well, go ahead and try. (laughs) And he was right. Go figure. All right. Uh, That was Ben, by the way. All right, so (laughs) going back now, Spencer, dig me out of this hole somehow. All right, there are the happy verses where God is calling us to do the impossible, and then he wants us to be able to say, I can't do any of that, none of it. And he's going to say, but I can, and I am, and I will for you on your behalf. And then once the spirit comes into you, which is called the spirit of Christ, I can do these things when you yield and cooperate and you're filled with the spirit of God. Yes, then you can. Nobody can be perfect and without sin in this life. But we godliness, it's possible to be a godly person, he says, with the spirit of of God in your heart, he can help you. He gives us his divine nature. That's exactly what is going on here. And so we start off here now, considering these hard words. I'm just, we're just gonna walk through it. We're gonna take our time and really kind of wring this out like a wet washcloth and get every drop of this beautiful, uh, the treasure of God's word into our hearts and minds, okay? It follows a nice flow. First, he talks about the wrong idea, right? Yeah, that you can love who you like to love, but you have to uh, hate your enemies, right? And then the right idea is that you love all people, including those 
enemies. And then he closes up there, doesn't he, with compelling reasons to put Jesus' teaching into practice. Oh, it's so important. So let's get underway. So he says, you've heard it said. That's been the pattern to kind of say, okay, uh, here's the common thinking out there among God's people even because they were Jews. He says that you've heard the accepted practice, the cultural stamp of approval, and even two thumbs up by your rabbis who, who will say, what's coming here? What I'm about to say is kosher by them. And they'll say, yes, that's in the Bible. And uh, God expects us to love most people, but with some people you have to draw the line and withhold love. And so we begin, they get the first clause, correct. And it is from a quote from Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18, love your neighbor. So they've got A right, even though they've dumbed down and only taken part of the command. And they've done that for a reason, because if you only take part of it and you leave out the qualifier, which in its original form, I'll just show you right here, in its original form, they just wrench out, but love your neighbor, just love your neighbor. So if you just wrench out, love your neighbor, then there's all kinds of stipulations and qualifiers and ways that you can find loopholes. And well, what does love your neighbor really mean, right? So they, they are already subtracting from the word of God, which is what happens out there. So the original form, as you see, quite more extensive what love looks like when expressed, revenge is out of the question, getting even, can't have that attitude, holding grudges is forbidden, constant mercy and forgiveness and cutting people slack and overlooking offenses. This is the concept of how God wants us to express biblical love all the time. And you see the degree that, that he has us loving others, love as you love yourself, which is kind of a slam to us because he's saying, you guys know how to love yourselves really well, how to make it all about you, how to, how to, how to manipulate things with this relentless drive uh, that self gets the best deal possible. So I want you to use that tremendous drive to make sure that you end up uh, in the best possible situation, everything works out for your good. I want you to take that drive and I want you to turn it loose on everybody else to love them the way you adore yourselves. And so we are our own greatest fans, right? And so, I mean, do you ever really stop uh, loving yourself? Do you ever give up loving yourself? Is there anything you wouldn't do for the person in the mirror? Come on. Don't you let the person in the mirror off the hook with so many things? He's saying, all I want you to do, you, who gets the most free passes on anything? You. You give yourself the most free passes for everything. You condemn everything and others that you yourself do. And he's saying, I just want you to take the free pass that you're always putting in your own pocket. And in love, I want you to take that pass out and start loving others in the way that you love yourself. Oh, but they left that out. Because that would be difficult and against our natural inclination. Now, he says, Love your neighbor. Neighbor is the catch-all phrase for whoever's near you, right? So if it was a coworker, and yes, it could have meant a fellow Israelite or a brother and sister in the Lord, but the New Testament makes sure you know that when it says love your neighbor, that we're talking about a coworker, an acquaintance, a relative, a shopkeeper, the guy at the gym. It's whoever you run into, whoever's near is your neighbor. Oh, we can go back. Thank you, Spencer, to our verses here in the command uh, to love. Now, when God says, I want you to love your enemies, it has zero to do with feelings or emotions. Our love, you know, we love a person. We love our pet. We love Chinese food. We love... Uh, the beach, we love everything because the English is so limited, but in Greek, 
They have words for lesser and greater loves. And the word used here, and you all know it from the word, from, from the Greek word, agape. And it's this unconditional, heavenly kind of love that loves for the sake of loving. Nothing in it for me. Your highest good, biblically, morally, and in truth. Some people say, well, love is love. And then we just, love means to the world, anything goes. Morally or truthfully, it doesn't matter what you believe or how you live. Hmm. No, love doesn't delight in wrongdoing. Love loves the truth. You see, so biblical love is what he's talking about here. The kind of love that is selfless and without conditions. The kind of love that you receive every day. He's saying, would it be so uh, such a big deal if I were to require you to extend the kind of love that I had for you when we were, quote, enemies? When we were enemies, I showed you enemy love. And now that you're reconciled with me, I would like it if you could show enemy love too. And so this is where we're headed. Um, but he is now, for just saying, we're admitting that we love our neighbor. And, and then they say, and rabbis with the finger in the air, and hate your enemy. And Jesus would like chapter and verse for that because there's no such command in the Old Testament at all. Look as much as you want. Though I was thinking, you've heard of the book, First Thessalonians, right? I was thinking, well, where is there a verse, uh, hate, your, uh, hate your enemies? Well, it could be in this book, First Balonians. <laughs> there you might find it. And thus saith the Lord, love the good people, but hate the bad people. <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, yes, love the ones you like that look like you, that talk like you, that act like you, that you can gain from their relationship that are easy, pleasant, and attractive. Love all of them. But the ones that you would rather hate, hmm, you can hate. Thus saith the Lord. No, that's not gonna happen. So what were the rabbis doing? The rabbis were taking human logic and human understanding and natural man's inclination and kind of trying to make the scriptures more reasonable, more palatable, to make God more uh, like us. You know, the Romans and Greeks tried to do that. And their gods and goddesses were exactly like us. And so the tendency was there uh, in the Jews as well. Let's make God a little bit more like us. Us, you know, who likes a bad guy who's a thug, who hurts people, okay? Surely he's not on good terms with God and surely we can justify ourselves scripturally and say we hate them, but no. And we've done the same thing. They repeated it over and over again so that people didn't know. They didn't have Bibles, most of them. They were uh, dependent on the rabbis to teach the truth of the Bible. So when the rabbis said, hey, God wants you to love your neighbor, but hate your enemy, they thought it was in the Bible, but it's not. And so uh, that happens today. And, and so if we frame it in the same way, let me give you a few examples of how we do that. You've heard it said, God helps those who help themselves. But I say to you, God helps those who admit they cannot help themselves. It's not in the Bible. Number two, you've heard it said, God accepts everyone the way they are. No need for change, just come as you are, period. But I say to you, unless you repent, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, you got the clause, the first clause, okay. But there's a second clause. Uh, number three, you've heard it said that if you're basically a good person, you'll make it to heaven. But I say to you, there's no such thing as a basically good person. You'll need a savior. And then the last one that I thought of, contemporary times, you've heard it said that Christ died so that everyone can go to heaven. But I say to you, Jesus speaking, that yes, everyone can go to heaven, but not everyone will. 
go to heaven because it's only for those who believe. And so uh, it was in that effort to make God and the, and the Jewish faith more reasonable and dumb things down. And the rabbis might thought it was reasonable to hate your enemy, but the Son of God, uh, now a different story. And so by the way, it shouldn't have come to any Jewish mind that that was A, wrong, and B, a surprise. No Jew there should have been surprised when Jesus said, but I have a new concept for you because it wasn't new. It's straight out of the Old Testament to love your enemy. The Old Testament gets such a bad rap. It really does. Like it would make sense. The Old Testament, you know how the Old Testament is. Love, uh, love those who you love, but hate enemies, man, because that's the Old Testament. No, here's what the Old Testament said. If your enemy's hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them water to drink. You might be thinking, boy, that sounds like New Testament. Yeah, because the Apostle Paul took it from the Old Testament in Proverbs 25 and put it into his letter to the Romans at chapter 12. So you find the Old Testament supporting love for enemies in the New Testament, but wait, there's more. Exodus 23, the law book itself, man, you're going straight to law when you go to Exodus and you get... When you come, command, when you come upon your enemy's ox or donkey that's going astray and wandering off, you shall bring it back to them alive. (laughs) (laughs) I threw in the alive part, okay. When you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden, Do not hesitate to lend a hand. You must help set it free. Why? Because you're children of God. You're not like others. You do things God's way. One writer said quite uh, bluntly, it's hard enough to lend a hand for people I like, let alone people I can't stand. Sorry, that's only him. He doesn't go to this church. (laughs) Love them right down to their broken down car, to their property problems, to their truck and all of that. And then the Old Testament says, and watch your heart, because if your enemy comes upon a disaster and you in the privacy of your own heart take delight, oh yes, finally, in your heart. God says, you will not escape punishment for that. I'll deal with you for that nasty attitude. That's the Proverbs right there. That's amazing. Proverbs 17 and verse 15, you will not escape being chastised for that because that's not how I am. He says, I take no delight in the death or the ruination of the wicked, but rather that they would turn from their sins and live. Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11. We have to be like God. Whereas kids, that's the point he's gonna make. And so, yeah, God is love. It's the distinction. It's the mark. It's the evidence, really. John and First John will say, chapter four, whoever doesn't love doesn't know God because God is love. So if God, who is love, comes to make his residence in your heart, Now you have love from God. You love God now. You love his people. You love all people. And you love your enemies. That is a Christian born again distinction that you can look at. John says, if you look at somebody and they're not a loving person, love doesn't characterize their lives, then then now I can say Houston, and I'll just keep it at Houston. <laughs> we have a problem. And so failure to love is evidence of not knowing God. And so he includes our enemies, and he says the first step here, and boy, is it genius. He says, pray for those who persecute you. Those who persecute us, he picks that because they're the most difficult to love because they are coming against us out of our love for Christ, a changed life, a desire to do what's right, and then they're causing us harm. They're blaspheming his dear name. I mean, they're very, very difficult 
to love. But he says, I want you to pray for those who mock you, insult you, persecute you. Verse 44 means exploit you, exclude you, fire you, refuse to hire you, imprison you, and in many countries and in the past, to kill you, to try to kill you. Now, not to feel good about them, not to, to agree with what they're doing, not to feel anything. You don't have to feel a thing because love is a choice, is an act of the will. It's not something you fall into and it's never anything you could fall out of because biblical love is a choice. It's a decision. And that is why you're able to love your enemy because your emotions, your feelings, your worldviews, everything's removed. And it's just putting something into override and doing good for them in spite of all the sensory overload you're receiving that says, not worthy of it, don't want to, and all of that. And so the first thing, uh, really good, that he says, pray for them. Because number one, your prayer is helpful to them. Guess what? You may hate them, and they may hate you, but God loves them and wants all people to come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved. So he wants prayer for them because prayer of the person who's right with God is powerful and effective. James chapter 5 and verse 16. He wants from your lips, and nothing is more powerful than a prayer of intercession from one suffering for the welfare of the one causing the pain. This is going to get God's attention. My word, he says, I want them in heaven. You know, and then when you start praying for them and realizing most enemies of a Christian are enemies of God, and most enemies of God surely are not going to heaven, and then suddenly by praying for them, you start to see where their life is going, you know, would anybody here, knowing what we know about eternal loss and the place Jesus calls hell, that says it's forever, forever. I, I honestly, the person who has wronged me the most in life and caused me the worst pain, I, I might want them to go there for maybe five seconds, <laughs> but I wouldn't want that to happen to them, especially when I'm praying. You can't hate somebody you're praying for. It's really hard. So he says, well, remedy number one, it'll change everything. The power of prayer lays it all out there and starts to get you to be em sympathetic. <laughs> <laughs> number two, the prayer is where I was headed is helpful to you, right? Uh, you know, you sense their brokenness. You, you kind of, um, I know this... Uh, a young man who was praying because his therapist told him to pray for his distant, difficult dad. And so he started praying and he went back to the therapist and he said, man, I can't believe it. I started feeling sorry for my father because he wasn't loved. And, and when, as I'm praying, I'm remembering some of the things he said about his father and how his father abused him terribly and set a bar so high and I saw my dad cry once talking about his father and all of that came to me when I was praying for him. I didn't see any of that when I'm angry and pointing fingers and being bitter and being hard-hearted toward him and being spiteful and planning how I can hurt him a little bit back and show him how it feels not to have somebody say I love you and all of that. Oh no, I didn't get any of that until I prayed for the person who I had a problem loving. Amen. And then I understood. And then you know what it does? It helps you to stop taking everything personally. You start to understand what's motivating them has not really very little to do with you. And if they're persecuting you, it has way more to do with God than you. And so thirdly, um, prayer is helpful to pray for your persecutors. Uh, it's helpful to onlookers. Oh my, what a witness for somebody to be crying out to God to be good to the person who is putting them through it. Man alive, that gets people's attention. In Acts chapter 7, 
a godly man, Stephen, one of the first martyrs of the church, one of the first deacons. He's preaching up a storm there in Acts chapter 7 to some Jews in a synagogue about the Jewish Messiah. He's just saying, brothers, he's your Messiah. Let me show it to you in your own scriptures. And so they had it. They had had it. They snapped. They drug him outside the synagogue. They stripped him and gave his clothes to the apostle Paul, who was not yet saved, going by the name of Saul. And Saul's given two thumbs up, standing there guarding his clothes while they take rocks and stones. What a way to die. Full-grown, angry men picking up stones and hurling them with all their man strength at the guy's head, at his ribcage, And it says, Stephen fell to his knees and said out loud, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And who is standing right there listening? The apostle Paul, or soon to become, the next sentence says, and Paul, Saul, was standing there guarding the clothes at his feet. And scholars say, where does it ever show us in the Bible where anybody got through to the Apostle Paul? Suddenly he's on his way to kill Christians and bam, he just wakes up and God appears to him. Something was happening in his heart that he came to faith and God pushed him over because nobody gets saved without coming to faith. Well, when did he come to faith? Scholars say, Acts chapter seven, when he looked at his face, and saw it looked like the face of an angel glowing. And then he utters a prayer of love on the behalf of those with rocks in their hands, crushing him to death. He says, Lord, be good to them. Lead them out. Reconcile these murderers to you so that they'll be my brothers in heaven. Don't count the sin against them. It impacts other people. What about our Lord? He lays down on a piece of wood that he created and those animals pounding nails into his wrists and his feet. And out of his words, no retaliation, no bitterness, no, well, you're going to get yours. No, he says, Father, let me pray for those persecuting me. Forgive them. They don't understand what they're doing. And is that the kind of love expressed that impacted our brother in the Lord who hung next to him as some kind of murderous insurrectionist? He heard him say that and was just unraveled by that kind of love. Who says that? He says, if only in his heart, if only I could experience that kind of love. If only that love would come my way. And he softened his heart. And he said kind words and had a change of heart. And you're going to meet him one day because somebody prayed for their persecutors. And he says, if I can do it, and I live in you. I just want you to yield and let me do it. I don't need your feelings. I don't need you to accept anything they're doing. I just need you to act in a kind, benevolent way that overcomes their evil with good. That's what he's saying there. And so we close out with uh, some strong ideas, uh, compelling reasons to do. Let me start with 45 and we'll get to the end now. Uh, That you may prove yourselves to be children of God, like father, like son. I'm paraphrasing, follow along. Like father, like daughter. This is how our father behaves, right? This is who he is. He treats better people better than they deserve. 
sunshine and blessing, rain on the crops of those who praise God, and rain on the crops of those who curse him. So here's the first thing is that it's a compelling reason indeed. Can you prove by your life, by your behavior, by who you love in this way, your spiritual DNA connected to God the Father? And the way you know you're connected to God the Father is when you love like God loves. So he says, he's making the case, are you or aren't you? The apple should not fall very far from the tree. And in some cases, it not only (laughs) falls far from the tree, it rolls down a hill into a creek and the water takes it 10 miles out. We're supposed to resemble our father. We're supposed to be father. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Every single time, every single time you're... Aggressed every single time you're hurting, every single time, let that prayer wash over you. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're saying. They don't know what they're doing. But and then you'll think, oh yes, they do. <laughs> y- you know what? Well, well, the devil could have told that to Jesus as well, and I'm sure he did. Even when they know exactly what they're doing, and they did know exactly what they do were doing. Jesus was famous. Those guys knew exactly who he claimed to be, that he could walk on water. They had it all. They knew what they were doing. They were killing the so-called son of God. When they know, when they don't know, our, our one option is to cut people slack because God treats everyone better than they deserve. He's benevolent and kind to all. Listen to me. God haters find husbands and they find wives. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. He blesses those who hate God with wives, with families, with good jobs. They have careers that they love. He gave them abilities, God haters. He gave them abilities to use that ability to make some money, to make a good living, to enjoy their lives. And they ignore him. He blesses them with children. Who can have a child without God's intervention? He blesses them. God-haters who will raise kids to hate God. They live in beautiful homes. They drive nice cars. There's food in the cupboards. There's savings and retirement plans. And they hate him. He protects them. He gives them laughter. He lets them take vacations. He lets their hard work pay off. The good, the evil, those who love him, those who hate him. God is good to those who break his laws, spurn his son, and mock his name. You and me. We received it, as I said. We received enemy love. We too at one time were enemies of God doing things that were uh, worthy of judgment. And he overlooked our wickedness and saw our need and loved us. And he says, I want you, I need you. You must do the same. No more, but, 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 no Stop, picture the person who's done the most, uh, caused you the most pain. Bring it up. Look at them in the face. Imagine it. And imagine the blood of Jesus washing over you and saving you and giving you new life and you in heaven seated on a throne knowing where you could have gone. Now imagine that person's face. And then you say, I forgive you. And you say it out loud. Go ahead, say it. I forgive you. Now like you mean it. Ready? I forgive you. Look at you. Yes, it is that easy. And you've entrusted them to God. And he will either break them in this life or he will break them in hell in the life to come. But that's his business. 
Your business is to love, to keep your heart sweet. And he says, listen, that's who you are. If you love those who only love you, what reward will you get? Now, that's a compelling reason. He says, you do know there's an awards night coming. You know at the marriage supper, uh, one of the angels is going to grab a mic and say, okay, everybody, listen, for some outstanding behavior while done in the body, uh, even though you guys were sinners, you had the Holy Spirit, uh, the Lord wants to reward you now. And so I'd like to call up, you know, somebody who what? He says, who does what, what the common crook does? So he uses tax collectors. Sorry if you work for the IRS, but the tax collector back in the day were the low bottom feeders, the slimy uh, traders, who not even their mothers liked them very much. <laughs> and he said, they have parties they do favors for one another. They have homies. Common criminals have homies. And they love the guys who wear blue and they hate the guys who, who wear red. And he says, and you want a reward because you do what they do really good? That's what Guido does before he goes out and takes care of them. You know what I'm talking about? He says, Guido and the Godfather, those five Italian uh, families vying for control, they're just charming. Everybody loves them. It was the highest grossing film almost of all time, The Godfather. Why? Because we identify, we love them, they're adorable. They look at how they love each other. And then it satisfies our, our vengeful hearts to, to watch somebody who's hurt somebody get theirs. The only problem is with these cute Italians is there are a bunch of thieves and murderers, right? And, and, and the whole movie's based about, you know, you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you. You mess with me, I'm going to, sorry. <laughs> I'm going to mess with you. And so while they're in church, the scene's cutting to elevators where somebody's getting uh, messed up with a, with a rifle while they're in church. And he says... If you do only what Guido and Vito know how to do, what you want applause, you want a reward, you want some honor, they do that every day in the jail. They love only those who love them or are nice to them. What are you doing more than others? You've got the Holy Spirit, you've been born again, you have God as your father. You have a new supernatural life. Where's the walking on the water? What, that's the question. What do you do more than those who are unbelievers? Are you living together? Are you sleeping together? Are you having sex outside of marriage like the rest of them? Are you clicking and with your tongue hanging out like the rest of the guys at work? Are you using the same language they use? Do you complain like all the other coworkers do? He's just asking a question. What do you do that sets you apart from everybody else? Do you sound like them? Do you gossip like them? Is your worldview that way? Come on, people. You've got the spirit of God and the divine nature. Participate. Cooperate. Turn from the ways of this world. Respond with the opposite spirit. Be different. If you only greet your brothers, if the, he's saying, if you're only hospitable to people who, who you like, who are attractive, who are fun to be around, who are uplifting, instead of saying, oh, they're a drag or, you know, excluding people, he says, if you are only friendly and kind and outgoing with those that you like for whatever reason, Where's the difference between you and an atheist? Because atheists do that. I'm just looking for, you know, my idea is, is that you're my child. I put my spirit in you. And I want to see somebody walk on the water. Where's the Peters who say, see Jesus living the life, walking on the water. And, Je and Peter looks from the boat and goes, wow, I want to do that. You know, and he says, Lord, if that's really you, 
I mean, you could call me, you could say, come to me and I'll get out of this boat and I'm going to walk on the water like you. And Jesus says, I like that thinking. Come. And he goes, okay, my turn. <laughs> okay, and then he gets out of the boat and he starts doing what he could never do unless God called him to do it. And now everybody's like, look at that. That's what he wants to say. He wants people to look at our lives and say, look at that. Forgiving somebody who's caused them such pain. Praying for somebody who's like their enemy. Not clicking. Going on their honeymoon. A virgin. This is what he's talking about. How are you any different from anybody else who doesn't even know me? Let's take his word more seriously. And then when he says be perfect, I want you to be perfect. He's saying the word means whole, complete, to have integrity. So he's saying, you know, here's the reach to live a godly life. There's grace to catch us when we fall, but we get back up and we say, these are the standards. This is what I'm shooting for. This is who I want to be. Amen? Amen? Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you so much for your love and receiving us and helping us, God, to, to be like you, not to try to earn your love, God, but simply because we received it now to let you live your life through us, God, in these powerful ways. We want to commit ourselves to you, care now. Touch our hearts and change us, Jesus, and keep these words around <laughs> down deep in our hearts that we may call upon them when they're, <laughs> when they're needed, which is quite often in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.